All right, good morning. Well, I am, I am blessed uh, to be with you this morning and get to preach from God's Word. I'm excited about where we're going, what we'll see. But I wanted to start by saying that marriage is disappointing. Marriage is disappointing. I shared that with my wife this morning. I said, I'm going to start by saying marriage is disappointing. And uh, she gave me this look, and I think she, in that moment, agreed that marriage was indeed disappointing. But a, a couple of, uh, well, it was somewhat recently in our house, I discovered that at the bottom of our stairs, different items, whether that be little girls' clothing or toys or different drawing utensils, what have you, things that can impale your feet, began to collect and find a home at the bottom of the stairs. And this was going on for a while. And I mean, I'm, you know, just kind of going through a minefield every time I'm trying to get up the stairs. And it was beginning to irk me. And I'm having a bitter heart every time I go up the stairs in my house. And one day I'm walking up the stairs and Rox kind of looks at me and she says, do you see all those things on the stairs? I'm like, yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you see them as well. Aren't they annoying? They're terrible. Why are they here? And then she began to remind me of a conversation that I conveniently pushed out of my mind that we had had several months ago where she had said, hey, I want to start trying this thing where we put different things that need to go upstairs at the bottom of the stairs so that you can carry them with you as you go up the stairs because I usually have a little baby with me. And you, Mark, you, you don't. You can take these things with you. And, uh, well, I guess I had never really gotten on board with that idea, because I I kind of forgot about it. But, uh, yes, needless to say, in that moment, I was a disappointment to rocks. I won't tell you the rest of the story, but I ended up joking calling my mom to try to get proof that I was not fit to bring things up the stairs, because I never even did that in childhood. Ten out of ten, do not recommend calling your mom during an argument you're having with your spouse. So, anyways... That happened in our household. But marriage, it it can be disappointed. We expect people to live up to what we want them to be. All relationships, really, are disappointing. We're fallible. Conflict happens. We're self-centered. We have a heart that goes after what we want. Now, we've been in the Song of Solomon, looking through this series called My Love. And today we're arriving at kind of the first hiccup or bump in the couple's relationship. The first period of conflict. Last week, we saw the consummation of their marriage. And this week, we're going to see them kind of go through a little storm in life. Now, today, I'm not going to provide you with a practical list of ways you can get through conflict in your marriage. That's not my desire. That's not my goal. At the end of the day, I hope that you will see Jesus better. I hope that your love for him will be greater and deeper. And because of that love, may your marriage look different. May the relationships in your lives, whether it be your roommates, your family, whoever it may be, I hope that as you see God better, that your love for others will grow. Song of Solomon can be difficult to go through, as we've talked about in recent weeks, you can either kind of fall on one ditch where it's just about human love, or you can go completely the other direction and say, this is only speaking about God's love for his church. And I think Matt has done a wonderful job in shepherding us through those two tensions. 
And so my desire today is to, 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 again, kind of show us how marriage is a picture of what God's love is like for his church. We saw last week in Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about God's love for his people is like a husband's love for his bride. And so I'm hoping to show us or to, to see as we walk through that marriage is a way to look, or we look, excuse me, we look through marriage and see Christ. We look through marriage and see Christ. And so Song of Solomon here is not an instruction manual helping us how to have better relationships, although it does have a lot to teach us about that. But more so, it is a picture of how God loves his people. So that's where we're going today. Now, also I have to say that this chapter, that, uh, chapter and a half that we're going to be in today are a particularly difficult part of Song of Solomon. So thanks, Matt, for uh, giving that, <laughs> that part to me. And commentators are all over the map. I read two commentaries by two of my professors, and if you lined them up in their theological convictions next to each other, they would check all of the same boxes. These guys believe the same things. But you get to this passage, and they are wildly opposite one another. So there's a lot of disagreement about what's going on here. And so I want to humbly come before you and say, this is my best understanding of what is going on here. And there's a lot that I may not exactly have right, and probably a lot of us don't have right as we're reading through this. So just want to kind of warn you off the bat that this is a difficult passage. It's poetry. It's not narrative, so it's, it's, but there's narrative elements. There's kind of a little story beat that goes along in what we're going to see. But it is poetry, so there's a lot of questions of, okay, what are we actually seeing when we read these words? All right. There's going to be three main parts of the passage that we're diving in today. First, we're going to see the conflict that arises between the husband and his wife, Solomon and his bride. Then we're going to see the wife's response, how she begins to pursue the husband, the things she remembers about her husband. And then finally, we see the husband's love for his bride and his response to her. So that's kind of the three places that we are going to stop at as we go. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that we would have soft hearts and open ears. Father, may you speak through me. May what I say be pleasing to you. And may it teach us more about who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. We've just had the wedding. We've just had the consummation of the marriage. We're in verse 2. She begins to speak. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drop of the night. Okay, so we'll pause there and ask, okay, what's exactly going on in this passage? What's happening? Well, Seems to be late at night because the man, he's, he's coming in from the fields or somewhere. He's, his hair is wet with dew, so the dew has fallen. And he's wanting to be intimate with her. Wants to be with his bride. She's in the chamber. The door is locked. And she's, he's like, hey, I'm here. I'm home. I'm ready. But she's sleeping. It's not clear whether this is even a dream or if she's just waking up or kind of what's going on. I slept but my heart was awake, exactly what that's referring to. But either way, she's at least groggy. And you know, she's kind of woken up as her husband is, is come home. 
And he's calling for her. I want to be with you. In that pleasing, God-honoring way that exists within marriage. Verse 3. She speaks, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. So here we have an initial rejection. She begins to think, I don't want to get up. I don't want this. I'm asleep. I'm tired. I'm dreaming. I'm doing something. And here he comes, and what, well, he just, what, what does he want? I don't want this right now. And she has these reasons. I've put off my garment. You know, I'd have to get dressed again. I've bathed my feet. How could I soil them? This is back in the day. Your floors would be dirty. So she's going to get out of bed. She's going to have to wash them again. She's got these reasons why she doesn't want to go to him. And we are like that in relationships. Not just marriage, but in relationships in general. We're slow to move towards others. People make a request of us. And we're slow. I can think of in my own life. Rox will say, hey, can you change the baby's diaper? Can you wake up with the kids tomorrow morning? And, oh, okay, oh, okay. And right there, it exposes my heart. I'm not eager to say, yes, I absolutely will love to change that poopy diaper. Usually if I see a poopy diaper, I'm like, how can I find myself somewhere else right now to where this will not be my responsibility? But that betrays my heart. It shows exactly what's going on in there. We are slow to respond when it inconveniences us. Why? Why? Well, ultimately, we are looking to our own desires. We're looking to what we want. We want to build our own kingdom. We do that with others, and we do that with the Lord. We're asked to serve in some way with our church or to serve our non-believing neighbors. It's like, uh, you know, what else do I have right now that maybe I'd rather be doing? We've always struggled with this. Paul, when addressing the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's part of who we are in our fallenness. We look to our own interests. And Paul admonishes us. He says, look. Look to the interests of others. Show them the love of Christ. We are quick to be slow. We're quick to be slow. It reminds me of on Sinai, as soon as God makes a covenant with his people Israel, what's the first thing that they begin to do? They start worshiping the golden calf. They are slow to be obedient. They're slow to give up on the Lord. Or, sorry, excuse me, they're quick to give up on the Lord. They're slow to be obedient. What would it look like to have a posture that is quick to say yes, that seeks to say yes and to serve our spouses, our church, our relationships? What would that look like to be quick to serve? Now, that doesn't mean that you always say yes. For those of you who are married, when your spouse is desiring something, whether it be intimacy or something else, that doesn't mean we always like, okay, all right, yeah, I'm ready to go. But what what would it look like, though, if my first response was, how can I serve? How can I think of them first? How can we have that kind of heart? All right. Now, we begin to see a change of heart in the wife 
in verse 4. She says, my heart was thrilled within me after he had put his hand on the latch. Verse 5, I rose to open to my beloved. So she's beginning to go. She's had that change of heart. And my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved. But my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I saw him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Her delay resulted in him leaving. She was gone. He was gone, excuse me. Now, we don't know why she had this change of heart in particular, but we do see there is this heart of she wants to go after him. You're like, what is going on with this myrrh? My hands drift with myrrh, and it's all over the place. What? <laughs> that seems a little weird. Well, to us it does. But for them, myrrh was an aphrodisiac. In Proverbs chapter 7, 17, the, the, uh, in, in, in Proverbs, we're, we're told that the, the prostitute tried to, tries to seduce young men with myrrh. So it's this alluring thing. So here she has, she's got, okay, I, I'm ready. I'm ready, my husband. But the time, by the time she gets there, he has quietly and gently left. He's let her be. He's respected her wishes, and he's gone. She was too slow to enjoy the intimacy with her husband. Now, I want to highlight what the husband is not doing here. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't throwing a fit. He didn't break down the door. He didn't manhandle the latch to get in. Now he said he put his hand to the latch, and then he left. You see, the only way you can respond like that in a sense of when things don't go your way, you know, he obviously had a plan in his mind. He wanted to be with his bride. And the only way you can respond in a way like that is when your hope is not in that person or circumstance. We have this tendency to put our hope in creation, in the created things around us, whether that be people, circumstances, things. We say, that thing right there, that person over there, this relationship I'm going to have, it will satisfy all of my desires. And it won't. We weren't designed for that. Creation disappoints. But the Creator does not. The Lord is the one person who does not disappoint. Now, we may not understand things sometimes, and it may feel disappointing, but he does not disappoint in that what he delivers is always better than what we could possibly want, even if it is difficult and not what we would expect. You see, placing our hope in the right place enables us to deal with disappointment or rejection. Placing hope in the right place enables us to deal with hope and rejection or disappointment and rejection. Instead, we can have hope. Psalm 4-7, I was reading just this morning, and I thought this was timely. The psalmist says this, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So he's looking at the wicked people, and he says, even when they have all they could want, all the grain and wine, he says, Lord, you have put more joy in my heart. We can only have that kind of joy when we're putting our hope in the right place. And here, Solomon, our husband, seems to have his hope in the right place. I'm reminded of a few days ago. Guys, you'd get a trip if you just stayed in our house for a little bit and saw all that our kids do, but particularly our youngest, Selah. She was uh, just fascinated by the refrigerator magnets. She loved them. I mean, hey, they stick 
to the refrigerator. It's pretty incredible. I mean, you find other things in life, and they don't just stick to stuff. And so she was, she's all about it. Well, then she took the refrigerator magnets and tried to stick them on the wall, which that does not work in case you are, you know, and you're wondering if you've never tried doing that. Drywall is not magnetic. And so she threw a fit. She's like, why doesn't this work? And I'm like, well, there's some physics behind it, but I won't explain it to you right now. But she was, she didn't understand that magnets aren't supposed to stick on the wall. And that's the exact same thing we do with the people and circumstances, relationships, and things in our lives. They weren't intended to bring us ultimate joy. Many times they are for our blessing, but they're not supposed to deliver often what we expect from them. It's like trying to put magnets on the wall. Let's see now what the wife does. So she's seeking him in verse 6, and then verse 7, the watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Now, this is an odd verse. Just got to say it. What the heck is she doing? The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. People have struggled with going, what's going on here. Oftentimes, this is one of the reasons why people think this is maybe a dream. People think maybe this is talking about something completely different. just depends on who you read. As I've been reading and dwelling upon it, I've uh, arrived at the conclusion that I believe that this is very much metaphorical language. That she's speaking of an experience that, that's going on within her heart. Specifically, conviction of sin. She's convicted over how she was slow to be with her husband. She was slow to to want him, to desire him, to answer his call. And so now she's experiencing the conviction of the Spirit. Oftentimes, when we sin, the Lord says, I want you to grow. I want you to be different. And his Spirit convicts us. He brings us a, a sense of what I did was wrong. And it's a sense of disappointment, of frustration, of Guilt of, 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 of anger and pain. And we think, ah, this is not the way it ought to be. But he doesn't put that on us to say, ha ha, look at how terrible you are and I want to crush you. No, he says, he's inviting us to change. He says, look at how awful this is. I want you to change and look at me, to repent, to go a different way. So I think that's what this is speaking of here. She's speaking of the conviction she's experiencing from not loving well. Not loving well. So, this kind of ends this beginning conflict section. Section of this text. She can't find him. But we see, through all of this, that the posture of our heart tends to be one of inward orientation. We're not immediately looking to our spouses, to our relationships, to the Lord, to his church, We're not looking to serve and to love. And it usually comes out in a delay. It's like, well, I'll eventually get to that. But through that, our hearts are revealed. So let's see what happens in this next section. How is all of this addressed? Verse 9. The others begin speaking. This is the chorus. You know, as you're, this is a poem, and oftentimes it might be set to music. You imagine you watch musicals. I love musicals. Often the chorus chimes in, and they start singing. So here they are. 
What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you, that you thus adjure us? Remember, she's like, hey, I want you to tell my husband that I love, love him. And they're asking, well, what's so special about him? Why should we think highly of this husband of yours, of this Solomon that you are looking for? Why? What's the big deal? This would be an excellent opportunity for her to complain. You'd be like, you're right. You know, I was asleep and he came knocking on the door looking for a happy time. Come on now, what's up with that? But we're going to see her response is very, very different. For those of you who know me well, you know one of my passions in life is Star Wars. I will defend Star Wars to the death. In my adult life, I have even watched all of the cartoons and enjoy them quite a bit. And you should too. I force my children to watch Star Wars. I want them to love everything about it. And if you were to ask me about any Star Wars movie, I could tell you all of the redeeming qualities. And I would lead with that, even though there's, there are some ones that there's some, some of the movies aren't good. They're, they're pretty bad. But I won't start with that, because I love it. And I will tell you about how it will change your life if you would just watch everything and, and read it. The kids don't want to watch The Mandalorian? Too bad. You're watching it anyways. That has happened in our house. So here we have, starting in verse 10, she starts praising her beloved. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices. Mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem. You see how she speaks about her beloved. Maybe some of the language seems odd to us. We've been seeing that throughout the book. We're like, I don't know if I would ever talk about my spouse like that. But that is how she speaks, this glowing, fantastic language. And you know what? This is an act of faith. This is an act of faith. They've had some conflict. She can't even find him right now. And here she is saying, man, isn't he incredible? He's my beloved and my friend. When you've endured conflict, whether with a spouse or a relationship, or even with the Lord, not that he's in conflict with you in that sense where he's like, I'm going to get you, but more so in that I don't understand what is happening in my life. If you were experiencing that, it requires faith to respond like this, to say he is my beloved and my friend. Hebrews 11.1 1 famously says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When you cannot see the love of someone else because they're not present, or you can't see the love of the Lord, of the Lord because you're like, I don't know what is going on here. It takes faith to remember these are the things that I know are true and to dwell upon that. 
I remember how God did this in my life. How He's changed me in this area. How He restored my brokenness there. How He died on the cross for me. Requires faith to look at those things. Now, real brief, I just want to highlight some of these phrases. We're not going to go through every single one and break it down. But first, we see here at the beginning, he's radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She's saying, he is the best. Then he says, she says, his head's the finest gold, locks are wavy, black as a raven. He's saying, look, he's got all of his hair and it's not gray. He's young. He's vigorous. Verse 13, he starts talking about his cheeks being beds of spices and herbs, and we get these lilies imageries. Well, talking about an aroma and these wonderful things, and aromas have effects on you. So she's saying, he has an effect on me. He impacts me. He is a delight to be around. And then she starts talking about these jewels and how he's got firm alabaster legs that are seated in, in gold. If you've ever seen me in shorts, you know I have very tiny chicken legs. They are not alabaster columns. My wife loves them. She's like, I love your skinny little legs. And I'm like, well, that makes one of us. They are definitely not alabaster columns. But she speaks of her husband. She says he is firmly planted. He is like sapphires. He is worth a lot to me. I value him a great deal. He is my beloved and my friend. Guys, I said marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. We look through marriage to see his love for us. And here we have a bride describing her husband. Same way in the New Testament. The bride usually represents the church. The husband represents Christ. And she's saying, my beloved, my husband, he's not just my beloved. He is my friend. He is my friend. John 15, 15. In the last night that he was with his disciples, Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. The God of the universe has called us friends. Someone he wants to be around. Someone he wants to have in his life, despite the fact that he needs nothing, he has nothing, or he he lacks nothing that he might desire, he is totally satisfied in and of himself, he needs no further relationships, yet, he calls us friend. My heart, oftentimes, I'm satisfied with the people in my life. Like, I I don't need any more friends. That's one more person to invest in. Yet God says, we are, as his children, his friends, his beloved. So, when you face disappointment, is this the way that you view your spouse? Is this the way you view the Lord? Do you dwell by faith saying, he is my beloved and my friend? His legs are like alabaster columns. I don't know, maybe maybe that's helpful for you, but... Wouldn't be helpful for me to think about the Lord with alabaster columns. But do you dwell upon this? Disappointment is an invitation to remember what is true about those we love. Disappointment is an invitation to remember what is true about those we love, especially the Lord. Especially the Lord. Do you dwell on flaws or beauty? 
and when you're let down? Do you view on your unfortunate circumstances when you feel like the Lord has let you down? Or are you dwelling upon who he is in the midst of his loving correction in your life? He is altogether lovely. And I do want to say, just as a note, this language, as the bride speaks of her husband, it's idealized. Nobody can live up to this perfectly. The expectation isn't that we become perfect spouses. But do I have a posture towards my spouse that believes this type of thing and seeks to believe the best about them? Okay, let's see how the chorus responds to her declaration about her beloved. Verse 1 in chapter 6, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're one over. They're like, hey, hey he sounds like a pretty swell guy. You know, we're, we're in the search. We, we like what you just said. When you speak about your beloved, Do others turn and think, wow, okay, they must be pretty amazing. When you speak about the Lord, are others seeing what he is like and saying, may we seek him with you? Because they see his character through your life, through the way that you talk about him, your initiation with them saying, come come with me, come find him with me. Do you have that kind of speak, of speech, of way of talking about the Lord. Now in verse 2, she begins speaking again. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Now, there's a question. Has, has she found him? Is, this, is she in the garden with him? Like, what's going on? Again, this is poetry, so sometimes it's not exactly clear. Throughout this book, there's a lot of garden imagery, and it generally speaks to intimacy and being together, sexual union between husband and wife. So when I read this, I do think that she is again united with her husband, and she's saying, we are together. We are united in intimacy. Doesn't take much imagination to understand how those verses might apply. But again, we look through marriage to see Christ, And I don't think it's an accident that gardens are often used to describe imagery, not just, or intimacy, excuse me, not just in this book, but throughout the scriptures. When God walks with his people in the very beginning, where does he walk? In the garden. When God dwells with his people in the temple, what kind of imagery do we find within it? The garden. In the fullness of time, In the New Jerusalem, what kind of imagery do we have when God dwells with his people? Garden. So when we see garden, as scriptural readers, our ears should perk up and we should be reminded of God's dwelling with his people. Of God walking with his people and saying, I delight in you, I want to be back with you. And the whole narrative of scripture is about us being kicked out of the garden for our sin, but ultimately being back in the garden. Because of the love of our God. He wants to be with us in the garden. Not in a creepy, sexual, weird way between God and man. But he uses the sexual intimacy between man and wife and to say, look, this is a picture of my love for you. 
This garden imagery is quite beautiful. He then begins speaking. So now we're going to see his response. We've seen kind of this initial conflict. We've then seen how she responds. Now we're going to see what he has to say about her. This is the man speaking. You are beautiful as Terza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. This is beautiful. He praises his bride. The bride who gave him the cold shoulder earlier in chapter 5. He's like, you overwhelm me. You overwhelm me. In verses 4 and 5, he compares her to Jerusalem, Terza. Terza would have been one of the major cities in the north, uh, of the northern part of Israel at this time. Uh, Jerusalem, obviously a major city in the south. And she's saying, yeah, he's saying, look, of the greatest cities, man, you are as beautiful as them. And then we see this uh, imagery. We actually saw it last week. We started, it's kind of... Uh, repeats itself. The whole structure of the Song of Solomon kind of has this kind of chiastic kind of uh, wedge-shaped formula and it starts repeating a lot of the themes as you get to the back half of the book. And so we see the same imagery about goats and teeth. You know, her having all of her teeth. That's a good thing. And uh, pomegranates and, and all these, these imageries. It's corresponding to what happened earlier. And so we have just delight from the king to his beloved. Then we get to these weird, weird kind of things about, you're talking about queens and concubines. We know Solomon had queens and concubines. Like, what's, what's, what's going on here? Now, I think this is actually just a figure of speech that he's introducing into the poem here. It's not a reference necessarily to his harem. It may be. But I, I think it's, it's easier to see this as a, uh, a figure of speech because he goes from 60 to 80 to without number. He's saying, hey, it doesn't matter how many there are. You are the one for me. In the same way, be like, oh, there's a dozen Instagram models. There's two dozen movie actresses. But you, rocks, you are the one for me. You are the one who overwhelms me when you look at me. You know when you're dating somebody and you kind of just want to, you love it when you just catch their eye. You're like, oh, I love it when they just look at me. Like kind of gives you that, ooh, kind of feeling. But here he is, he, here he is in marriage. And he's saying, your look overwhelms. It's one thing when you're dating someone, you're all googly eyes to be that way. It's another one when it's like, I've seen you at your worst. I see you when you wake up in the morning. I've seen you on the toilet. I've seen you everywhere. But man, you, oh, I look at you. You overwhelm me. You know what? God speaks of us in very similar language. Of us, his church. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17, very uh, famous kind of prophetic speech that God utters in the prophets and says this, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save, and get this, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. We see that language time and time again in the scriptures of how God speaks about his people. And here we have a parallel between this this husband and his wife. And again, we have a picture that we look through the marriage to see Christ and his love for us. You don't have to be married to, to have this apply to your life. To see how God's affection for us should change us and impact the way that we live. When you read this, do you believe that God loves you? That God loves us like this? Do you believe that? He sent his son to die for you so that you could be in the garden with him. To walk and talk with him. You see, we have rejected him. We have sinned against him. We have said, we do not want you to be our God. We will be our own gods. We will go our own way. We will make our own garden. We're not doing a very good job at doing that. We are separated from him. But God says, I love you. And I'm going to do something about your separation from me. I'm going to do something about my wrath that rests upon you. And the judgment that you deserve. And he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die for us, to pay the penalty that we owed so that we could be united with him. And he says, look, there is my love with Jesus on the cross. That is my love for you, fully displayed for the world to see. And he says, do you believe this? If you believe this, you will have the fullness of my love. You will experience eternity with me in delightful relationship, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new garden that we walk with him. And when we recognize that truth, he takes our rebellious heart that is slow to love, that is slow to serve and respond to the people around us, he gives us a new one, one that can be quick to love, one that can can be quick to serve. He says, I'm going to work in that heart and continue to change it over and over and over again and build you up into a new person so that when someone asks you to do something that is inconvenient, your response can be, I would love to be with you. It is our understanding of God's love for us that allows us to move towards others. Because when I understand wow, this is how much God loves me and I did something way wrong against him, then there is no way for me to look at what somebody else has done to me and say, I can't move towards you. Because I know just how much I have been loved. I do have some practical steps for you to think through as when it relates to relationships Uh, Marriage in particular, but also relationships in general. The first is to overlook offenses. Overlook offenses. We see that in this relationship that we saw today. That doesn't mean, and I'm not saying to sweep it under the rug. But Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Mainly because I know that God is the judge of all. Things are not ultimately going to be left uncared for or unaddressed, but that God in his time, whether that be at the final judgment or now, God will do something about it. So I can overlook 
offenses. And again, that doesn't mean I don't necessarily address it, but it does mean that I don't let things fester deep down in my heart. I don't allow it to, to take my, my heart and just kind of keep, continually crush it. Instead, I say, God still loves you, and there may be something we need to address, but I am not going to allow that to destroy me. God sees he will deal with it. And I'm also not saying, I, just, I want to be very clear, I'm not saying you overlook abuse or you just go along with whatever, that you become a doormat. That's not loving to the person doing those things to you. They need to be confronted and dealt with. But I am saying that in my heart, I am quick to overlook offenses. I'm going to praise Rox. That is one of her chief attributes and qualities, that she is quick to overlook offenses. Our stairs are still quite the mess, so she's still overlooking my offense as I quietly ignore the mess every time I go up. Okay, another thing. Secondly, so the first one was overlook offenses. Second one is don't demand what you believe you're entitled to. You may be entitled to something. You may deserve something in your mind. Don't demand it. Just be, I'm going to serve. And not with the intent of ever getting what you think you deserve. Just serve. That was Jesus' model for us. Thirdly, dwell upon their beauty. You may need to make a list. You may have to exercise some discipline in doing that. But think about their beauty, primarily their character beauty, who they are, the things that God has been doing in their life, and share it with them. If it's appropriate, be like, I see God doing this in your life, and I just want to celebrate it. Now, you may be married to a hard person. You may have people in your life that are difficult. We all have them. It's always that one person, you know? You're like, oh. And it may be your spouse. It's not easy. I'm not saying ignore the ways they need to grow. But I am saying remember that they are in the image of God. And that God's love for them is far more than you can imagine. And if God loves them, how dare I hate them? If God is patient with them, how dare I be impatient with them? When you understand God's love for you, you are able to move towards others. I think that's what this section is trying to remind us of. That God delights in us. Because of that, we can move. We can be different people. We move towards others. In summary, the posture of our heart tends to be inward-oriented, selfish, and and about personal kingdom building. We're slow to love because of that. We're slow to love the Lord, and we're slow to be patient when things don't seem to go our way, and we say, God, are you listening? Do you care? I was sleeping, and you came and woke me up. But, but, our God is gracious and delights in us. He's our beloved and our friend. Our beloved and our friend. He responds in grace, sings over us in love. And as I understand his grace and love, it enables me to turn outward from myself and towards the people around me, especially those who are closest to me and most hard to love. Are you disappointed in your spouse, in your relationships? Understand more of God's love for you. And that will change. Understand more of God's delight in you. 
And understand that he wants you to love because you've been loved. That he doesn't look at you with a frown and sense of disappointment. But instead, he is the sovereign God of the universe. And he says, you are my beloved and my friend. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are our beloved and our friend. And we thank you that you give us marriage as a picture of your belovedness and your friendship. Father, I pray that we would love the people around us with a love that seeks to be gracious and selfless. Help us to always see our own brokenness in front of you and your movement towards us so that we can in turn love others. May we always delight in your love and understand your delight in us. And may that radically change who we are. May we be different people because of your love. Pray this all in Jesus' name.